You are listening to The Mallard Report, a live radio show that ventures into the mysteries of life, as well as the hot topics of the day, either political or business. Wow, I don't know if that intro is as loud for everybody else as it was for me, but wow, that was loud tonight, so that's good. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Mallard Report. I hope everybody's doing well this last Tuesday in April. Man, April flew by. Um, you know, I keep saying, oh, when we get to May, we'll do that. And then I realize uh, May starts before I realize. And, yes, it will be May because it's going to be – it'll probably be June before I get to some of these things. Just don't tell my wife because that'd be bad. Anyways, my guest tonight is Eric Minecrats. I Help me out, Eric. Did I say That's that right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, Eric Minecrats. Yep, very well done. Um. The reincarnate, reincarnationalist papers is the title of the book, correct? That's right. The reincarnationist papers. That's that's a mouthful, right there. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in hindsight, I probably could have picked a little easier title, but uh, it, it well, is it is pretty easy, on it, the nose as far as what the topic is. It is it is an easy enough word. It's just a a lot of syllables to try to string together for a poor guy like me who has trouble with two. <laughs> so okay i guess tell give me the um the thumbnail what the book's about so before we get too far in the what else is going on so um yeah i will do so hey first of all jim thank you for having me on the show i'm really excited to be on the maliard report talk to all the people in uh in maliard report land uh it's a real pleasure to be on with you so the reincarnation's papers it's a novel and it's a novel about a young man who was haunted by the memories of two past lives. And when I say memories, I mean total recall. Languages, skills, experiences, loves, everything. And he thinks that he's alone in this world until he accidentally stumbles into a woman who is just like him, and she recognizes him for his condition because she's actually just like him except she's much older. She remembers back seven contiguous lives. And then she turns his world upside down by introducing him into a secret society of others like them that remember their lives over and over and have been uh, agents driving history over the centuries. So, that's a, a lot going on there. So, I'm, let's, okay, let's go back. To, it's been a while since you first wrote this, but let's go back even further. Obviously, you had an interest in reincarnation before you started writing this. Uh, I did. The, this was um, That was actually one of the two things that was a catalyst for the book, is I actually have three memories that don't belong to me. They're very short uh, but they, you know, they, they happened before, you know, I was born in the late 1960s and I don't know what to do with them, Jim. I don't know who they belong to, but they don't belong to me. And, but they're as real as any other memories that I have. So with that being said, but the characters, the characters in this book have the full fledged, I mean, you're talking, you had free pops of moments of time. I can't, I'm sitting here, I mean... I, I, I joke and refer to that probably as deja vu, seeing something or knowing something. I mean, I've had moments where I've seen something or had something happen in a dream and then had it happen in real life years later and could connect it too. But it's going to be difficult for you to have those moments that you can't connect forwards or backwards to anything. Uh, yeah, they're just, you know, sort of like these, uh, you know, <clears throat> to use an IT term, they're like a file that doesn't fit in a directory anywhere. Right? They're just sort of leftover files. And and so the thing was, like, this was one of the catalysts for the book, is I thought, what would it be like if you remembered everything? Not just a few shards, but what happens, you know, what would be what would it be like if you lived in 1890 in um, in, in Eastern Europe and and spoke that language, remembered how to hitch a horse, uh, knew how to smith. 
because those were your skills, and uh, you know, in the in the in the early nineteen or in the late nineteenth century, what would that be like? And then <clears throat> I kept going backward in time, thinking, what would it be like for those characters to have those experiences that would accumulate over and over and over? And they basically they turn into sort of like uh, uh, the way that it was described to me on, a, on another show that I really like and I really latched onto is they lead very enriched lives, my characters, because they've had so many different experiences that they can draw on. I'm sitting here thinking it'd be nice to remember everything that I'm supposed to remember today. Um, <laughs> right? Like, I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, there are so many things. Like, I go to the store and can't remember why I went. <laughs> yes. I've, uh, <laughs> I've, I've had that as recently as yesterday. <laughs> so, okay, so let's, let's talk about this other transition that you had going on here. I mean, I know you're an IT guy. That doesn't necessarily translate to book author, per se. So how did you come about wanting to write a book, even? So I've, I've had this dream for a long time, Jim. Uh, just, you know, I think telling stories is just really cool. You know, you've had a lot of authors, a lot of storytellers uh, on your show. I was just listening to the to the Lincoln conspiracy with uh, with Brad Meltzer and John Mensch uh, earlier today, and um, I actually think I'm going to go back and pick up that book as a result of that. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think telling stories is just really uh, really cool, and it's been a passion of mine for a long time. Back in, you know, it goes all the way back to my university days at University of Colorado. Um, I studied a bit of computer science, but my degree is actually in Russian literature. So, um, you know, I ended up studying... Wait, can I, can I stop you for just a second? Because I have to. You, you made this conscious effort to study Russian literature. What did you think you were going to do? Well, it was part of a degree of Russian language and literature, and this was in 1987. So I obviously, I obviously of, noticed that we've kind of veered from that original mm-hmm. course, so I kind of want to dig back into that, because that's, that's, yeah, yeah. there has to be something so, so, here. So my, so, yeah, so my goal for studying Russian language and literature was I wanted to work in, uh, I wanted to work in the intelligence services. Ah, okay, okay. There we go. And but you know I ended up you know really focusing in hindsight on the literature part of the degree, um, and so you know I ended up studying uh, you know Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Turgenev, Pushkin, those kind of guys, and it really sort of set the hook in me around you know uh, storytelling and just the art of narrative and being able to transport the reader to a different world and as a reader being transported to a different world. And I just I, I just think that's so cool. It's been a passion of mine for a long time. Before I started working, uh, which is at my, at my day job up until a week ago at the Oracle Corporation, um, working for Larry Ellison, uh, I, before that I had written for, uh, I'd written two tour guide books for Italy. Uh, I'd written for the Denver Post for a while. So I've always sort of had the bug, Jim, and uh, it just it's really been able to come to complete fruition here with the reincarnationist papers. So I've got a punchline here for you. I hope you didn't quit your job in a in a I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is here. I mean I knew you knew you were coming on the show, but I mean obviously this isn't the major springboard that's gonna wa- launch you into major <laughs> success. I Absolutely. I hope, this is going to. Gonna <laughs> I, hope, right I hope somebody didn't mislead you. And the. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I saw Brad Meltzer and John Mensch were on the New York Times bestseller list, and I assume they got here by talking to you on the show. I wish. I wish I could take credit for that. Maybe someday. <laughs> I, I think they no, did all right before they got on the show, though. Especially Brad. <laughs> Uh, no, I uh, uh, I knew this was coming for a while. You know, the book is uh, the book actually launches in seven days, a week from today, May fourth. Uh, it will be available uh, at, at bookstores everywhere. So it's your favorite place where you buy books. You'll be able to get the reincarnationist papers. Um, I went to my bosses at Oracle and I said, "Hey, I'd like to take six months off to support the launch of this book." take some time to work on the second book in the series 
and to support the premiere of the movie, because there's been a movie adaptation of the Reincarnationist Papers. It's a, it's a Paramount picture called Infinite, starring Mark Wahlberg, that is due, COVID permitting, Jim, to premiere September 24th of this year. Yeah. Okay, let's let's save some of that for a minute. So, are you going back right. to work? Are you going back to work, or did, did they tell you to take two weeks off and then see you later? Uh, no. So, so they, so yeah, uh, Oracle was actually really very accommodating uh, to me around this. So they they're allowing me to take six months off, and then they're uh, they're they're going to bring me back uh, in October, uh, unless uh, you can help me get onto the New York Times bestseller list. And then I'm probably just doing this full time. Well, I'd love to think I have that kind of pull, but <laughs> I, I, I'm very realistic and know that. Well, I don't. But stranger things have happened around here. I can tell you that much, though. So, <laughs> yeah, I tell you, if, if, yeah, if I if I if this happens and I end up being on that list, um, coming back onto the show, and we're giving you credit for it. Okay. Well, I, okay, so. Let's walk through the story of the book, because the book isn't necessarily as simple as we're making. I mean, obviously, we've got the plot, but there's this whole other side of the book, too. So let's delve into the other side of the book, and then we'll get back into reincarnation, because I think that's fascinating. But we're going to be all over the place, because that's kind of how I roll, because I, my mind kind of <laughs> wanders around as we take these different turns. So you wrote the book. I know you self-published it. So obviously, there's that, right? There's that first, get it out. Tell me how that kind of went for you, because... That's a hard road to hoe. It is, and it was a lot harder when I did it back in 2009 than it is today. Um, but you know, I'd, I'd worked on the book, um, uh, you know, during the 2000s, and uh, really felt like I got it in a pretty good shape in 2008. And I took it out to get it traditionally published, and you know, I approached some different literary agents. And they they liked the book, they liked the writing, but they they just didn't see how they could sell it. And so uh, I didn't end up getting picked up by a publisher at that time. And so I decided that I would self-publish the book. And the mechanics of self-publishing, you're right, Jim. They're actually it, it actually is kind of a tough road in some ways. Uh, today, it's actually a bit easier. Amazon makes it pretty easy with their Amazon KDP platform. Uh, back then, I had to go to an independent publisher, a print-on-demand publisher called Lightning Source. Um, and uh, so they would actually do the print versions of the book, and then we would, you know, uh, they, would, they, they would print them on demand. And they'd, they'd print 10 or 20 at a time. And then when Amazon sold through that inventory, they would uh, print some more. And it was a very involved, very laborious, very time-consuming process. So that was the mechanics of it. But there's actually something else uh, sort of interesting and a bit unorthodox that I did when I self-published the book. And that is I, I, I listen to my readers. And, and Jim, when I say that, what I, what I mean is that I would, I, would, I would talk to literary agents and they'd say, like, yeah, the book's good, but I just don't know if I can sell it. It's just it's two different genres. It's, I don't know how it's going to land. But every time that I had people read the book, they loved the book, and they kept saying, man, this is so needs to be a movie. I love this book. Continue writing. I want to read another one. And so I just sort of trusted them that they were the true arbiters of quality in the marketplace between authors and readers. And then I, I went and I, I, I did something even more interesting. I took, a, I took a page from my day job, which was at Oracle at the time, and there's a thing that we do in software development that's called crowdsourcing. And that's where you, you define a goal of where you want to take a software product or a functionality within a product uh, or a look and feel. And then you share it with customers or end users and you say, hey, go play with this or go expand this, go write something for this and then come back to me and then we'll put it in the product. So, you know, crowdsourcing is a little bit of sort of IT lingo and Silicon Valley lingo, but 
there's a couple of great examples that put it into put it into context. Number one is is Linux operating system, right? This is not Windows operating system or or uh, you know iOS. This is uh, this is uh, an operating system for computers that different programmers write and they collaborate on together. Another great example is Wikipedia, right? Wikipedia is a crowdsourcing effort where we all contribute, we peer review, we edit each other's work toward a common goal. So in that crowdsourcing vein, what I did is I, I decided to offer my readers a reward of the agent's commission if the reader could introduce me to a publisher or a Hollywood producer that would take the reincarnationist papers to a wider audience, say by, by producing a movie or making an adaptation of it for a Hollywood movie. And then I priced the books as low as I could price them on Amazon, and I just, you know, I, I didn't lose money, but I didn't make money on any of the books. And I just, you know, I sold as many books as I could. And then I hope for something good to happen by empowering my readers to, you know, my first readers to be agents for me. And what I didn't know is how far that message would actually go, because what had happened was I had I basically empowered all of those early readers into kind of a silent army of agents. And, and Jim, it sounds like the craziest message-in-a-bottle marketing plan right up until it works and then it doesn't sound crazy at all i was gonna say obviously it worked but it doesn't sound crazy at all because i kind of follow that same method i understand it you want you want your people to go tell other people and have them pick it up or listen to it in my case and kind of just pay it forward and pass it forward so it doesn't sound totally crazy to me but we're okay so this goes on for a while i'm assuming because we're talking now and you started in 2009 so at what point do you kind of, there has to be a tipping point here where you either kind of give up on it or something strikes, or maybe there is both in this. Um, yeah, you're, you're spot on. Um, you know, when I first did it, I, I thought, you know, this has a chance of working. I, you know, I wasn't a hundred percent confident that it would work, but I thought, you know, this has got, this has got a puncher's chance of actually, of actually <laughs> working. It's just crazy enough that it could work. And, you know, I would get, Every 90 days, I would get one or two emails, you know, somebody's, you know, brother's friend's wife, you know, uh, was in the mail room at HarperCollins, right? Or, you know, somebody's, you know, uncle's babysitter, uh, you know, is a stuntman on the lot at Paramount Pictures. And, you know, so there were these little sort of chains of introduction that were starting to happen. But the real breakthrough happened a year and a half later, and I remember this uh, exactly. I still have the email. It was on Thanksgiving Day 2010. I got an email from a guy out of the blue, and he said, hey, I just read your novel, and, uh, and, and <laughs> the crazy thing is he had found it. He had found a copy of the novel, just an abandoned used copy, in a hostel in Nepal. And he read it and loved it. And it turns out he was an assistant to a Hollywood director and said, and, and he emailed me and said, hey, I can totally see this as a movie. If nobody's claimed this reward yet, I want to start working on this and get the reincarnationist papers made into a movie. And his name was Rafi. And Rafi came back to, uh, you know, from Asia. And we formalized a finder's agreement that was to the same terms that I'd specified in the reward on the first page of the book. And it, we, he was off. He, he was just tireless, Jim. And he, he worked so hard. He took it to at least three different studios. He worked on it for four years initially to get it sold to the first production company, which was called Bellevue Productions, and they gave me my first option on the book. And then they took three years to write an, adaption, an adapted screenplay called Infinite. And Rafi just stuck with it the whole way through. And eventually Bellevue Productions and Rafi took it out to 
all of the major studios, and Paramount bought the Infinite screenplay uh, same day, and then it was and then it was off. So it's set. You know, I, I can I can sort of encapsulate that in about three or four minutes. But that was about seven years worth of work that Rafi did, keeping the thing alive, keeping uh, the the idea of this movie alive with different studios, different producers, and finally it did catch, and uh, and Paramount started shooting in 2019 and got it done right before COVID hit in uh, in early 2020, and it's due to be in theaters. September 24th, starring Mark Wahlberg, of all people. Yeah, I was going to say that there's a, I mean, there's the, we've got to go back for just a second, because there's getting it together, getting it as a screen, because we had um, Manu and, and Ramey on last week, who's a, uh, he refers to himself as a D-list Hollywood actor, probably is, but I, I don't like referring to people that way, but he, t- he was telling me about the other perspective, once you get to that, you have the screenplay, you're just going out looking for money, and how hard that is. To, to shoot this this film, and then you go. I mean, even okay. So you, you got it sold, but then it's it's all out of your hands at this point. So if it even gets made, or who's who's in it, or any of this stuff, it's just kind of luck of the draw. And you did pretty well. Yeah, and and I feel like I did really well on a couple of points, and I'll, I'll talk about I'll call talk about a couple of those. But as soon as <clears throat> As soon as the, as soon as Rafi got the, got the book optioned to Bellevue Productions, he, I was super excited. And he said, Hey, Eric, call your jets. It's only about 1% of these that ever go from being optioned to being sold as a movie. And so I tempered my enthusiasm. And then three years later, when Bellevue sold it to Paramount, the Bellevue people, uh, that was John Zalzierny, the, the producer at Bellevue Productions, he said, hey, we sold to Paramount, but, you know, just pump the brakes here because it's only about 5% of these deals that ever get made into movies where they actually start shooting. And, and they talked me through the process, and, it, and John, Jim, it's exactly what you talked about. There has to be a studio there has to be a producer that wants to do it there has to be a director that wants to do it there has to be a-list actors and actresses that want to do it and it has to be sort of a collaboration where a lot of people have to sort of gravitate toward this project for it to happen because all of those components lead actor lead actress supporting actor, you know, big name director, all of those pieces have to be in place or it's not really a viable movie product. And uh, I got super lucky on this um, at a couple of points. Number one, um, the first star that was going to be attached to it was Captain America. It was Chris Evans. And he was going to play the lead character, Evan, um, and then he backed out and then all of us thought, okay, well, this project had a shot, but now it's dead. Um, and then they, and then Mark Wahlberg, uh, stepped in and was interested in it and picked it up. And the, the, you know, Mark's reputation is that when he gets involved with a project, uh, he stays with it and it gets done. And, uh, so I got super lucky, uh, that Mark was interested in the project and I just I, I can't imagine uh, any better person being the lead actor on this than Mark Wahlberg. I mean, it's, it's it, the guy's amazing. He's a superstar. So throughout this process, how much in the know are you? How much do you day to day know what's going on? Very little, very little. Um, the producers that I worked with would keep me informed. Um, usually, you know, more with good news than with bad news because they didn't want to completely <laughs> crush me, Jim. Um, but but yeah, you're right. I mean, you 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 really hit on it earlier. After you sign the deal with the production company and the studio, uh, it's out of your hands. They're going to take the story and they're going to uh, they're going to adapt it to uh, to their vision of the story. Uh, 
Um, and, you know, and movies are different than books. I think we all know that. Uh, it's, it's, it's a different entertainment medium that has different needs and different demands that have to be met. And sometimes uh, parts of the story get changed or augmented or dropped. And you have to be okay with that as an author. So did you ever, I mean, obviously throughout this whole process, you keep hearing one, five, no, you know, it kind of feels dead the right. Did you ever just kind of put it on, I don't, I don't want to use this expression, but this is the expression that just jumped to mind. So I'm going to use it, put it on the shelf and said, well, that was what it was. And now I've got to do something else. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and I'm laughing because I'm remembering back to all of the, uh, emotional roller coaster ride that that was because, you know, when they call you and they say, oh my God, Chris Evans just signed up for the project, and they say, now this thing looks like it's about a 50 50 shot, right? And you're thinking, oh my gosh. And then when Chris Evans drops out, they're like, oh, this thing's back down to about a 5% shot. It's a real long shot now. And, and you really do have to temper your enthusiasm. And, you know, Rafi's advice to me at the very beginning was spot on. John Zalzierni's advice to me at the beginning was very spot on. That so few of these uh, actually make it all the way to shooting and then from there all the way to being in the theater. That it's, it's just, it's, it's a real gambit that you have to. You know, uh, a few other publishers at my, or a few other writers, uh, authors at my publisher, um, have had movies option and have gone, you know, a, a good way into the process only to have it fall apart at, you know, the 11th hour, the 10th hour, the 8th hour. And it's, you know, it's heartbreaking. And I'm really, I'm just so grateful and so fortunate that my project, um, you know, was, has, has made it all the way through. So we're going to grind gears here because that's what we do. Like I told you, we're going to be jumping around. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm trying to make that smooth transition. You're a former radio host. You understand exactly what I'm doing here. I'm just alerting the listeners that I've got a, a horrible change of subjects going here because I, I've noticed this with you and we kind of almost got there earlier, but now I want to get there a little bit more because I think you'll have an interesting take on this. The art of storytelling. And that's necessarily in the book. Of course, this, again, this is way two different total mediums between writing a story and telling a story. And I'm fascinated because you do a good job of telling, you're doing a great job of telling your story. But obviously you did a great job of telling your story in your books. So talk to me about the difference of storytelling versus storytelling. <laughs> um, you, you mean like, like, like writing versus movies? Well, no, writing versus, like, actually, because you, you obviously, you worked as a tour guide. You can present and tell that story. Like I said, you're doing a great job of that tonight. You have you have your points, you're on point. You're audibly telling me the story, but when you sit down to write, there has to be a different mindset. So how does, like, well, I, I, I guess I'll, I'll give you the, the direct point I'm talking about. There are some people that feel like they can tell a great story, but they sit down to write it and it never materializes the way they think it should or vice versa i i you know posted the show long enough to know that there are some people who are great writer writers and when it comes time to tell their story to me and to sell their book they can't it doesn't translate oh yeah that is that is actually a very tough skill for writers to 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 be good at is to be able to is, is to be able to number one create a sound bite level synopsis of the book that they spent years on and probably wrote, you know, somewhere between 80 and 120,000 words in a row to get the point across. And then to be able to distill that down into two or three minutes or even 30 seconds, man, that is a very tough skill for anybody to do. But I think it's really tough for writers to do because they're used to working on a big canvas you're talking about three or four hundred pages, and then when you restrict them down, that's very hard. But here's I, I think I, I think I know what you're talking about. And you've been doing this, geez, for what, ten years? Yeah, right? something like that. We're not gonna talk about that. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> you started when you were eighteen, right? Uh, something like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> here's the thing. Uh, I did I, I did a, uh, a weekly radio show for two years. 
uh, back in the late 1990s. And the thing that I learned, and that you probably know very well, is that radio and live podcasting is very much theater of the mind. So you have to create this for the audience, for the listener. You have to flesh out all of the details. We have to talk about all of the nuance because they're sitting there at the other end of a podcast and a live transmission, and their minds are building out uh, on, on what you're telling them. And writing is very much the same way. Writing without a reader is sort of like the old uh, Japanese axiom of that's the sound of one hand clapping. A writer without a reader is sort of like someone who's projecting a movie with nobody in the audience. Because the reader, if you think back to reading some of the books that you've enjoyed, you actually co-create the experience in your own mind because you're fleshing out the scenes that the writer is presenting to you, but you're adding details. You're bringing your own experiences to it. And I thought that's... So that's where I think some of the good storytelling that might come from radio is applicable to writing, is that you have to appreciate that it's a collaborative experience, and you have to lead the, 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 the reader or the listener a good portion of the way, but you have to leave a little bit of white space for them to use their own imagination and for them to plug in some of the things that makes it a personal collaboration for them. Yeah, and there's that fine line because some of my listeners may have heard of you before and some of my listeners have no clue who you are. And you're trying to bridge that gap of filling in those gaps for the person who's never heard of you before, but also maintaining something for somebody who has heard you before and give them something, I don't want to say new and unique because I'm sure it's hard to come across those things anymore, but um, especially with people who are out doing a bunch of interviews, but there's still, you're always trying to get something new out of the guests. So there's that fine line between of, Hey, uh, you know, know too much about this guy. So what'd you have for lunch versus <laughs> tell me about the book. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So now let's get back into reincarnation for a little bit. Cause I, I, this okay. is, this, this is where it gets fun, right? Because like, we've kind of talked all the talked all around and now we're back to this. So, where where did you, I mean, obviously, like you said, you had your flashes, but how did you develop that into what became the book? Because it right. feels like I'm missing a few steps in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we should definitely uh, uh, pause on this for a while and talk <laughs> about this. So, so, that was, so those three memory shards, and I call them shards because they're just, uh, seriously, they're five. 10, 15 second little snippets. That was sort of one catalyst for the basis of the book. And then taking that idea to an extreme of, hey, what would it be like if you remembered everything? What if it were multiple lives? What would it be like if you had all that collected experience? But then the other, the other influence for the book is, uh, is that age-old saying, and I'm sure that you've said it, we've all said it, Oh my gosh, if I only knew then when I was 20 what I know now, I would have made different decisions, right? Right. So that, that so then I took that to its extreme. And I said, well, what would it be like if you were 18 or 20 years old and then you began to remember all of the previous lives and previous experiences from 200 years? So what would it be like if you only knew when you were 20 what you knew as essentially a 220-year-old. And then I thought about what would it be like to write and engage and, and have those characters in a book, and that seemed like a heck of a lot of fun. And so, and so those were the two, um, the, the, the two big drivers for, uh, for, for, the, for, the, for the catalyst for the book. So I'm going to ask a loaded question here. I don't know if you can answer this or not. You have characters in the book that cross paths based off yeah. of this. Were all the characters that 
you have in the present day? Do they all know each other the whole way back through the 220 years, or is it a mix of like interweaving? Like there's at like 180 years back they knew each other, but at 60 years ago they didn't. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I do completely. And this is this is a great question. So um, it might take me a little bit to unpack this, but we've got um, 25 minutes wait. left in the show, so I'll just I'll just sit here and listen. <laughs> I can do it less than that. So, um, so, so, yeah. So this is why uh, these characters, when they first found each other, and they knew, and they and they discovered that they were older than their physical bodies, meaning that they remembered their past lives. And those past lives formed a, a series of lives, meaning that when you die, you know you're going to be reincarnated again, and you're going to remember in a new body being Jim Malliard and hosting a live podcast. And in a new body, you know, uh, in the future, you're going to have all of these skills that you've accumulated by, uh, by, by doing 500 and change shows over, over 10 years. Um, you're going to be you're going to have more in common with other people like you than you are with the general normal person. And so these characters uh, formed a society to be able to come back to in order to associate with one another in lifetime after lifetime, even though their bodies will be different, they'll look different. They might be a man, they might be a woman. They might be tall, they might be black, they might be white, but their personalities, the personality that they knew 50 years ago, 150 years ago, 350 years ago, is the same personality that they loved or that they were friends with or that they were enemies with. And, uh, and that, so, the, so they do keep running into each other over and over again in new bodies. But the mind is the thing that transcends and is the same, and, and that, that, that personality survives the physical death through reincarnation so that the characters end up being centuries old, essentially. That's just fascinating to me to think about having a meeting place, a, a club, as you say. Just I'm just going to refer to it as a meeting place. And knowing to go back there no matter where life took you. But still having that draw to that place is just fascinating. Yeah, and it would be like an, it would be like a perpetual home for you that you knew when you went back there that you would meet the Jim Malliard that you knew and loved from a lifetime ago, and that you would go and that he would be there. And so that's why you know that that's why they they end up uh, sort of aggregating around the secret society. That they form. The other thing that they can do via the secret society is once there were enough of them, so that there would always be uh, at least two or three of them alive at any point in time, uh, they began to will their assets to the secret society so that they could accrue wealth lifetime over lifetime. Well, see, that's fascinating to think about all the different streets. I refer to things like you're going down the street and you see the different street and you turn down the street and I'm at that point where I'm turning down a street and I'm looking at this other street going man, to keep thinking about all the different little places that this conversation can go because the different layers of people and you say two or three of them being alive at any point. So is there a master number of, I guess for the lack of a better word souls at some point? Well <laughs> uh there's there, well, there's there's sort of a there's sort of a microeconomic version of this and a macroeconomic version. So, um, and and this is actually like a big philosophical question that I wrestled with when I was when I was writing the book. In 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 the, in the microeconomics, there are 28 of these individuals so far that know each other and that come back lifetime after lifetime to the secret society that's based in Zurich, Switzerland. And, uh, and they associate with one another. But does that then beg the question, well, why are there only, you know, two or three dozen of these when there are, you know, seven billion people on the planet? Is, does that mean that there's something that's anomalous with them? Does that mean that there's something that's deficient in the rest of us or vice versa? 
And if you if you this is actually one of the one of the real sort of sticky points about reincarnation is um, and if, if it's a fixed number of souls, then reincarnation sort of makes sense because everybody gets recycled when they lose their mortal coil and they die and they go into sort of a recycling queue, for lack of a better <laughs> metaphor. Uh, right to be yeah. reborn. Oh no, I totally, to I totally back. agree with you and follow you. I'm just, yeah, yeah. you know, it's just kind but, of a funny but, principle. But, yeah. but, in the, but, but, but in the macroeconomics, right? What is reincarnation? What is how does reincarnation work if it's an ever-growing source of souls? If the number is ever-growing, where are the new souls coming from? And this is a philosophical question as old as you know Buddhism and reincarnation, and I don't profess to answer that. But but I but it, it's an interesting question you bring up, and it's something that gets brought up a lot in the circles of like you know philosophical conversations around reincarnation. Uh, you know what? How do we factor in for the net new number of souls that are walking around at any point in time? My my thought is: Do they split off? Like, do you get part of an old soul? Or do they become completely new souls? And I know you don't have an answer, but that's just kind of my 11 o'clock at night when I should be sleeping question. But, you know, (laughs) I think we all have. (laughs) Exactly. So I guess guess the question is, I'm guessing there's – I think I've seen in the trailer for either the film or the book about somebody trying to get into the club. I'm assuming that's part of this, this story. Yes. So that's Evan's journey. So Evan is the one that, you know, so we follow Evan uh, in the book, and Evan is the one that is sort of haunted by these two complete recalls of two past lives of people that lived before him. And he's, you know, he's trying to reconcile their memories that don't, that don't fit with his. And you know, he's, he's, he's sort of in that same trap that I talked to you about earlier. If you were a couple of hundred years old, you would have more in common with someone else who had reincarnated several times and had that massive experience versus a normal person, right? You would definitely feel like an outsider uh, and that you didn't fit in. And that's Evan until, uh, until he meets this other woman. Her name is Poppy. And she brings him into this secret society. And this is when he sort of comes home and gets and finds a family for the first time and a real peerage that he can belong to. And so and so we experience this secret society and the lives of reincarnationists through Evan and his journey into the secret society and whether or not he can pass their tests for entry. So, actually, let's do this before I get too much further, because I, I want to make sure we get this all taken care of cleanly. Uh, tell people where they can find the book and about the movie again. Okay, great. So, uh, so the book will be available for sale. It's, it's, for, it's available on pre-order right now, but you'll be able to get it in bookstores everywhere. Um, you know, if you have a favorite indie bookstore, uh, definitely shop at your local bookstore. It's always great to support your local merchants. Um, but it, it'll obviously be available on the, on the giant retailers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, bookshop.com, bookshop.org, um, things like that. Uh, you can get detail on the book at my website, uh, ericmykranz.com, E-R-I-C-M-A-I-K-R-A-N-Z, uh, com, and, uh, I'm assuming that that'll be linked, uh, in the, in the, in yep, the, yep, yep. the listing once we're done. Um, and uh, if, if there are actually some insider exclusives, if if people want to sign up for my newsletter, which you can do on the homepage, uh, you can uh, get some hidden chapters in the book, uh, some additional content, and some research notes into reincarnation uh, that I will give you uh, if you sign up for the uh, for the for, for the for the newsletter. That's that's good stuff. People need to get over there. I'm going to encourage them strongly to do that because nothing better than free stuff that you can't get anywhere else. Exactly. So, again, you had to have kind of spiraled into all this stuff, though, because this is an easy thing. This is a lot of deep thinking to get to that point. Taking your free shards and then turning it into a, 
a novel turning it in then getting it picked up. I mean, obviously there had to have been, as I was just joking about, many sleepless nights for me just even off the cuff thinking about some of these topics. How long did it take you to actually write this? Uh, it took it took two years to get the first draft done, and it's a pretty big book. It's you know it's four hundred and twenty pages, hundred and twenty thousand words. Um, so it's a it's a big sort of bullet stopper of a book. Um, and then from there, it took me um, you know working on it on and off a couple of more years to really get all of the different timelines tightened up because some of the book happens in the present day. Some of the book and the, the interrelationships between the different characters happens in historical flashbacks where they were friends or they were foes or they were enemies or partners in previous incarnations. Uh, so part of the book takes place in the 16th century in the American Southwest when two characters are conquistadors. Part of the book takes place in 17th century France in the court of Louis the the the, the, the 15th, and uh, and then when the Palace of Versailles is being constructed. Uh, part of it takes place in World War One. So being able to have all of these characters interact and to keep them straight and, and their character development and their, and their interrelations straight across multiple timelines and multiple histories, that's actually sort of a, rick, a real tricky dribble to make uh, in writing the book, and that actually took a lot of cycles, Jim. As I said, it just made my head hurt thinking about trying to keep track of <laughs> a, a single character through all these different points, and then you interweave char- multiple characters through different points in time. And, and, most, they'll look different in, and, and they'll look different in each one, but their personality's got to be the same. And I'm also a little surprised I didn't hear any any Russia in those time points or Italy or you know <laughs> so, you know there are certain I mean let's be honest those those places probably would have been a little bit easier for you to kind of weave because you know them or know about them. Uh, I do, yeah. <laughs> um, I had to uh, I had to save those for 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 the other books. Well, so uh, in. Yeah, in the second book, we uh, there's some historical flashbacks to ancient Rome, to feudal Japan. Um, there is one in uh, in Italy um, in World War II. Uh, so uh, so yeah, I, I I actually I actually get to visit Italy and I get to visit Russia and Lebanon in the third book. The third book. Yeah. You, uh, so just make 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 so second, make it sure. Yeah, so the second book is, uh, I've, I've, I've written it, it's in the seventh draft right now, I'll probably... Wait, isn't that the seventh you... layer of hell? Oh, wait, never mind, continue. <laughs> <laughs> but some, some days, it feels like I'm in a, I'm in a Dante narrative. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's fast. I, again, I'm just blown away by keeping yourself and keeping yourself sane through all of that. I just. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> yeah. Uh, some 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 people may say that my mileage on that may vary, uh, depending upon how well I'm doing in my, in my next in my in the next uh, in the next book in the series. That and then, may be saying, may, may not be saying. And, and please don't take this as anything more than a compliment, because it's going to sound a little backhanded at first. Um, to go through all of the writing and all of the stress and the ups and downs of just writing it. And then all the ups and downs of getting it to where it is, being a Mark, Mark Wahlberg feature film, all that up and down, up and down. To sit here and tell me you've got the second one ready and you're working on the next one, uh, it's just phenomenal to think about. Like it, It's been an amazing journey to this point, and obviously it's going to continue for the next several years by the sounds of it. Uh, I hope so. Uh, from your lips to God's ears, Jim, let's hope that's true. Uh, I mean, I certainly enjoy. Uh, I certainly enjoy writing the books. I envisioned it as at least three books in the series, and probably uh, at least one to three more. Um, so there's plenty of material there, and if you think about it, uh, I've got all of history to play with uh, and to explore. So I've got a lot of different directions that I can take this because the characters can be quite old. 
Yeah. And I'm looking right at my chat room right now and all those fun people there and they're having a good time and enjoying this conversation. But remember last week when you said Hollywood hasn't done anything new and creative in a while? I think we found something here tonight that is new and original that we all kind of need to gather some support behind to make sure they keep doing it because we we don't want this to be one and done. So just saying that for the record. Yeah, you know, you know, your listeners are so true. And, and there's actually a little bit of a backstory to that. Um, because it's true, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's the next superhero movie. It's the new movie that's based upon some toy franchise, right? Right. Um, there was a man who was really critical in this, uh, movie coming to pass, uh, in the same way that Mark Wahlberg was. And that gentleman is Lorenzo de Bonaventura. And he is the primary producer on the film, along with Paramount Pictures. And Lorenzo Bonaventura really pitched this as a very different, very unique, sort of new and fresh story that Hollywood could tell. And people may not remember Lorenzo de Bonaventura's name, but he's actually uh, he was actually the primary executive and the head of Warner Brothers, at the time when Warner Brothers brought in the Wachowskis to make The Matrix, which was another really sort of, you know, paradigm shift of a movie, right? Nothing really made like that before. And a lot of people in Hollywood, to to hear him tell it, and I, I got to meet him when I went on set to see the movie being filmed, to hear him tell it, right, it was really difficult for him to get that movie made because... Nobody had ever done anything like that before. It seemed really outside of everybody's comfort zone and a real big risk. And he puts Infinite down into the same category as The Matrix, which to me is very flattering and very exciting. But it is really um, not your average recycled idea Hollywood movie. It's like something you know completely new. Well, I guess that answers my this question. What's the greatest compliment you've got about the book or the movie so far? And I, I'm pretty sure that might be it. <laughs> uh, that's that's yeah. That, you know, when when guys like you know uh, Rafi Crone, John Zalzierni, Lorenzo Di Bonaventura, um, uh, Mark Wahlberg, you know, they, they 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 can work on whatever project they want. The world is theirs. They could work on, you know, another Batman movie. They could work on, you know, rom-coms. They can do whatever they want. And when they decide that this is a story that they want to adapt and they want to work on, it really feels good. It feels, you know, this, it, it, it's hard to get much more commercial validation than these Hollywood professionals uh, investing their time and capital to take this story to a wider audience. But I would say that, the best compliment that I that I that I got so far, it's probably two. Um, number one is the screenwriter. His name is Ian Shore, who wrote. Uh, so he wrote the adaptation of the Reincarnations Papers, which is Infinite, and he really liked the book. And do you remember what I told you in the, in the at the at the top of the hour that my friend Rafi, the guy that found the book in Nepal and was the junior uh, assistant to a director and worked tirelessly to get this made, and he stopped at a couple of different studios. Well, one of the other studios sent out the book to be uh, reviewed by a couple of different freelance screenwriters, and one of them was Ian Shore. So Ian Shore read it before it was with uh, Bellevue Productions, and he had loved the book, and then when Bellevue Productions optioned it and they said, hey, Ian, we've got this great book that we want somebody to do uh, an adaptation on. And they said, it's the Reincarnationist paper. And he's like, oh, my God, I read that book. And that's the one that got away. Right. That's the story that got away in his previous experience. And then he had a chance to go back and, and actually do this wonderful adaptation for Infinite. And so the fact that he felt like this was the story that had gotten away and that he got a second chance at it was just a huge compliment. And then the other one is when I uh, I got to go on set to see Infinite being shot, and it was mostly shot in the U.K. with some uh, of, the, of the movie being shot in Mexico, some being shot in Thailand, some being shot in Nepal. 
and I met the director, and the director is Antoine Fuqua. And Antoine Fuqua is probably most famous for Training Day, uh, which was a wonderful movie, but he's also done the, uh, the Equalizer series. He did, um, he did um, Southpaw, the boxing movie. He, um, uh, he did the remake of The Magnificent Seven. And uh, so I got to meet him. And the first thing he said to me was he just looked me straight in the eye. He's, he's a very intense artist and a very intense director. And he looked me straight in the eye and he's like, man, you wrote a heck of a book. And I was like, okay, I'm just sort of <laughs> floating over the ground, flittering with my little wings, right? And <laughs> I, could just, I could be happy now. That was just an amazing compliment. Not that you already weren't, though, right? Because there you are walking on the set of your movie. I mean, that had to have been something special, too. Like, that, that just had to have special. been... Yeah, that was something special too. And this is, you know, and this is, you know, Paramount is really has pulled out the stops for this. This is going to be one of their two biggest movies of 2021. Uh, the other one being, um, the, the Top Gun remake, uh, or the, the Top Gun sequel rather. And I remember, you know, uh, spending a day and a half with Lorenzo de Bonaventura on set and just the nicest guy. He's like, you know, one of the, I think he's like the second most, um, uh, uh, second most prolific producer in Hollywood after Steven Spielberg. And, you know, he, he, we're walking back up from the craft tent after getting a cup of coffee. And, and he just looks over at me and he sort of, you know, touches me on the arm and he's like, hey, take a good look around. And, you know, when you're on a movie set, there are hundreds of people working there. And it's like, you know, it, it's like an army in the field. And he said, none of this happens without you and your book. And that just blew me away. I mean, I just, that was just the cherry on top of the whole thing, Jim. So I just got a question popped up in my chat room, and I have to ask it before we run out of time, because we're almost out of time. Where I, where can people get an autographed copy of the book? Because that's a great the question that just popped up. <laughs> well, we want to get so, you writer's cramp here, so let's get this answered. Um. My publisher is going to be doing some autographed uh, copies, uh, so you need to stay in touch with me on ericmycrans.com. Uh, and then the other thing is when we're all sort of on the other side of COVID, it seems like we're in the fourth quarter of the game here, right, or hopefully at the two-minute warning here with a lot of people getting vaccinated. Um, I will be in bookstores. I will be traveling around the U.S., and I will be signing books. And I, one of the things that I love, um, uh, one of the things I love most about writing is interacting with readers. The other thing that I will offer, uh, in addition to signed copies, if they if they sign up uh, on the for the for the Insiders newsletter, is uh, I will join them via Zoom for their book club. If there are six or more in your book club and you read the book and you want to have me in for an hour after you've read it, uh, I will join your book club by Zoom, and you can actually book me for that on ericmycrans.com, and there's uh, there's actually a book club page there. Well, Eric, I appreciate your hour tonight immensely. I feel like we accomplished some great things. Uh, doors always open. You're always welcome back here, so uh, remember that. Of course, I'll have, I will have. I get the feeling I'll be chasing you as this goes forward. So. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I, I'd love to be back. Uh, I mean, you've had some amazing guests. Uh, you, you had David Politis on, who I love. You had Brad Meltzer and John Mench on. You had uh, the Zachary, the poker guy, on just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And I actually have that guy's book on my bookshelf about poker tells. So uh, there's, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of people that make your show that, that I that I that I enjoy. So I, it's actually been a real pleasure, Jim, to be on the show with you. Well, I, I appreciate it, and have a good evening, man. Actually, I'm, I'm out. So have a good evening. <laughs> All right, thanks, Jim. And that's it, man. I just out, just out of time. That was great. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mail Report. Stay tuned for details on saving money at the Duck Pond Shop. I hope you enjoyed this report. Please subscribe so that you can join us again. And if you appreciate the show, leave us some stars or a review. For more notes from this show or other great shows, check out Mallard.com. 
A reminder, the views and opinions of this show are those of the host and guest and do not represent any sponsors, affiliates, or any other partners of the Mallard Report. Now for your money-saving tip. Promo code Mallard at checkout of duckpondshop.com where you can get your t-shirt, coffee mug, and other great products. That's promo code Mallard at checkout, duckpondshop.com. Until next week, stay safe and keep quacking. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.